Well, we'll get started. Um, I'm not a professional, so uh, this might be interesting for you tonight, but I get excited uh, to share, and I'm probably one of the most unlikely people uh, to be teaching for a couple different reasons. Um, one, I hated public speaking. I chose my major in college to avoid any speech classes. I played sick in high school to avoid speech and just hoped the teacher would forget that I was gone that day and I might get a pass. That didn't happen. Um, so getting up to talk is not something that I have enjoyed doing in the past, have pursued to do in any way, shape, or form. But apparently God calls people that are weak in areas and forces them to do things like this. And that does motivate me. So an encounter with Christ has radically changed my life. And that grace has moved me to get up in front of people and talk about it. And so I do get excited to teach, even though at the same time, I don't enjoy getting up to speak in front of folks. And I do know the power of God to move me up here to do this, which looks very common or normal. Um, but I know personally how much power God's working in me to get me up here. And so it's, it's exciting just to be able to testify to that. And so a little bit uh, of background about me, and then we'll talk about where this lesson's going to go. And I have a tendency to drop a truckload and bite off way more than I can chew. And so you'll, you'll experience that tonight. Um, and we'll, we'll see what you can retain out of that, if anything. Hopefully one thing, that's all I ever pray for, just one thing hits people in some way uh, that makes sense. And so I was raised Catholic, baptized as a Catholic, confirmed as a Catholic in high school. Uh, they did that when I was a senior in the Grand Island Diocese where I grew up. And I did not live a holy life. I was living in uh, sin when I was confirmed. I you know, lived a very immoral life um, by worldly standards. And I didn't have an interest in God or the Bible or the church, really. I just went through the motions all of it. I don't remember us missing mass on a Saturday or, or a Sunday. Um, I was faithful with my family at that. I would have not gone if I could have got off the hook um, to do that. And I did do that um, shortly after my um, junior year because my parents divorced when I was a junior. And at that point, um, church was an option and I chose not to uh, go to church because it's boring. Mass is boring. God is boring. Uh, though I believed he was there, um, you know, you go to mass enough and go to CCD enough that you see a crucifix, you know that he died for your sins. You know these facts, but how does that do anything to your life? And it wasn't doing anything to mine uh, up to that point in time. And so then I went off to college and lived the same life of debauchery and sin that I was living in high school, and I just grew with more opportunities, right? Um, but it was in that point that something happened, and that something happened was an encounter with Christ through this book. And so I get very excited about the Bible, that we would know the Bible, and the church gets very excited about that. So I love that. Um, it's not just me. Uh, that comes from the church doing that. And so I have a lot of passion around scripture and that we would know it really well. And so some of what I'm going to try to do is just give us a broad stroke in understanding the big picture as we look at the Our Father, because there's a lot within the Our Father that we can comprehend and understand. But when you know the entire picture, a lot more gets unlocked, even under even understanding Father, understanding kingdom, his will, what forgiveness really is. And 
what temptation is. So all those things really come to light when we see it in the full scope of scripture. And so we'll try to unpack that a little bit. So as I mentioned, I was raised Catholic, and then I had this encounter with Christ through scripture um, when I was 23 years old. I'm now 45, so 22 years have passed since this has happened, and I'm still as excited as I was that day uh, when I first started reading scripture. Um, but what happened was I was in my last semester of college and I wanted to understand, you know, what am I going to do with my life after I graduate? You know, what, what's the meaning and purpose of life was really what I was asking myself. And I had a Bible uh, that was given to me at confirmation because, you know, what do you do with a Bible? You can't throw it away. It's a holy book. So you just tote this thing around in boxes and it follows you. Um, so it followed me and I had it and I remembered that. And so I was like that. I believe that book would tell me the meaning and purpose of life. So God was stirring in me at that point. No one had talked to me about God at that point. Um, there was nothing that I watched or heard or anything like that. It was just a stirring God was doing. And I had never really read the Bible before, so I didn't know, you know, how to find anything or where to go. We all have to start there, right, at some point in time. And I encourage you to start if you never have. <clears throat> so not knowing what to do, I just opened it in the middle, right? Because well, that, that sounds like a good place to start. And the neat thing about the middle was it landed me in the book of Psalms. And Psalms is very beautiful. Uh, many of us get familiar with the Psalms because they're easier reading and we sing them at church and different refrains and whatnot. Um, but what I really enjoyed about it was it, it gripped me to see the life of a psalmist as it was up and down. Like he got mad at God and he told him so, right? Some days he was very depressed. Other days he was angry. Other days he was joyful and happy. And I was like, this this psalmist is a real, he's like me, you know, like I can identify with this. Um, but he was very excited about God and, and the scriptures and his word. And so I just kept reading in there. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. Um, I didn't know that that was maybe called a quiet time. I didn't know such things existed. Like people get up early in the morning to read their Bible and pray. Like I, I didn't know any of that existed necessarily, but that's what I started doing naturally. And then I wanted to tell other people about what I encountered there. And so I shared that um, with everybody I knew, um, mainly via email, because that was an easy way to broadcast this message out that God is changing my life. And a person responded to that, who was my cousin, uh, who I grew up with in uh, our hometown, and we're about six months apart in age. We grew up very close. He's very important in my life. And he responded to this email and told me, you know, you need to go read these verses. And he listed them out. You know, Ephesians was one of them. I didn't know even how to pronounce Ephesians, let alone where to find that thing in the Bible. But thankfully, there's a table of contents, so I could, you know, figure out, oh, okay, this is where this thing's at, and it's on page, you know, 1050, whatever, I can find it. Um, and he told me he had been praying for me for a few years. And I was like, oh, interesting, what, you know, what about? Um, and he was raised Catholic as well. He went here at the University of Nebraska, and he got involved into some Protestant ministry. Um, called Navigators, like Focus for Catholics. Uh, Crusade is another Protestant one. And that kind of led him out of the Catholic Church and into a Protestant evangelical environment. So I followed him on that journey um, because I met some of his friends, his Christian friends, and they were very impressive to me. I mean, these were like men. They were manly guys. They played sports. Um, they liked things that I liked, but they were loving and kind towards one another and served one another. And it was different than what I knew uh, with my buddies. And so I was attracted to that. And that led me into the evangelical world. And I spent 15 years there 
um, mainly in a non-denominational Bible church where I learned the Bible front to back and how important scripture is. And I never looked back one time at the Catholic church. I wasn't interested to return being Catholic at all. I never even thought about it. And so the fact that I'm here is another unexpected reason that I would be giving this lesson today. Because once again, God showed up and did something unexpected to bring me back to full communion with the church. And that process was painful. That process took six years of study on my part before I, by God's grace, was able to see the truth that the Catholic Church is all that she claims to be. And I love to be able to proclaim that and tell that to others that are interested in the faith or grew up as a Catholic and didn't quite know all the things about it. I love to talk about those things. And so tonight, you'll get a little bit of exposure to that um, as we look at some of these things. So the handouts are long. Um, that's what I have a tendency to do. And we'll look at a couple different parts. So the first part We'll look mainly at this document, which I think is probably in the very back of your notes, and we'll kind of walk through this in a couple different ways to try to set the stage um, for where we're going. What I hope to do is give you a little bit of a broad stroke um, to feel, if you're not familiar with scripture, to get a little more familiar, to know how you might be able to begin and where it might go, and that it's a little more um, simple at times than what we'd think. So it can be very simple and it can be very complex and deep all at the same time. So you, you can never exhaust all that God's at work and doing in here. So in our in our first part here, we'll just look at the big picture, creation to new creation. We'll try to get a, a backdrop of what it is to encounter uh, the Our Father prayer in a bigger context. And then we'll briefly just look at the seven different petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and hopefully you'll be encouraged a little bit out of that to take something away as maybe think about it a little more deeply yourself as I have done. This isn't something I've studied previously, so I've not done an exhaustive study of any kind on the Lord's Prayer before. So this is kind of the first crack at really thinking about it more deeply. Personally, I've read it many times. I, we say it all the time, right? But to really slow down on each line and meditate on it and pray about it and think about it from a whole scriptural standpoint as well as just what does God want to say to us about each different line and as I began doing that the notes began growing and growing and growing and of course the catechism's chock full of things to help us and there's all kinds of personal things that aren't even in these notes that I've that I've gained uh, that God's given uh, in this process so it's just been very beautiful anytime you do that with any portion of scripture that will happen God will speak to you in some way shape or form and so what I hope to do here is just look at this um the salvation history timeline, right? And when you when you look at the Bible, it is actually a book that is held together by bookends. So it starts in the beginning, right? Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it ends in Revelation, where God creates a new heavens and a new earth. This, this Bible is bookended by those two things. The story actually holds together. There is a thread that runs all the way through it, and there's many of them. And we'll just briefly talk about one of them in particular. And so as you look at the chart, of course, we start in the beginning where God created the heavens and the earth with Adam. And we've heard of Adam, right? And what's what's with Adam? What's the importance around him? How is he to be this um, steward and this ruler on earth in God's stead? So he's supposed to rule the earth, rule over it as we read over everything. And he's supposed to do it God's way, right? So Adam is a prominent figure. As we look into the New Testament, we'd see Jesus is called the last Adam. So he's referred to back to Adam. There, there's some connection with him that we would want to try to understand as we look at the entire storyline. And then we know of Noah, we know of the flood, and we're going real high level here, right? 
um, and that his line was preserved for a reason, what's with him and, and the eight that were on the ark and what's all involved in there. And th these things get really deep with typology, which we won't have enough time to, to touch tonight, um, but it'd be fun to do so. And then you have Abraham, where I want to stop off a little bit and think about. And as you think about Abraham, he's significant for many different reasons. One was God changed his name. It was Abram, and it, he changed it to Abraham. Anytime God changes your name, there's something significant about that particular person. And we'll see that as we look at a couple other name changes within the Bible. And so it's something to be mindful of as you see a name change. What, what's God doing with changing the name? What's going to happen with him? And as we look at Abraham, God made some promises to him. One was that he would have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sands in the sea. Like there was just this promise that he could have all these children. And he's trying to figure out how could that, how could that be? But he promised him there'd be one from his line. There's going to be a seed that's going to come from Abraham. And that's important because as we started with Adam, we know that Adam and Eve fell. They sinned against God. And in doing that, God made a promise to them and said that there would be one that would come from the woman, the seed of the woman, who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And so thinking about this seed, we get a promise initially in Genesis that we want to pay attention to. God makes a promise. He said that there's going to be one that's going to come from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So who is this one? Who is this seed? And of course, we can fast forward and know who that is. But as you're starting in the beginning and working through, this is the this is the storyline that Jesus steps into. So we need to understand the storyline so that we better understand Jesus as well. And so this seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent picks up steam with Abraham because now Abraham's promised that one from his line, a seed's going to come from there that's going to bring blessing to the nations and light to the nations. And so we start wondering, well, who who will that be? Abraham's childless at this point. He's past bearing age, like him and his wife are super old, right? They shouldn't have children at this point. So it would be a miracle if they had any children. And that's exactly what God promises them, uh, that he will have a son. And he has Isaac. So we wonder, as we're reading the Bible, is Isaac this one? Is he going to be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? And it's not going to be Isaac. Will it be Jacob? So one of Isaac's sons, Jacob who again, he had a name change. So his name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. That's where we get that name. It's from God changing Jacob's name to Israel. And there's going to be this nation. The seed's going to be blooming and growing. The son of God is going to uh, become a whole people, as it were. And then there's going to be one son from Jacob called Judah. And he's important uh, because Scripture promises that one from his line will come and will rule. And as we look at some of the verses at the top, of that sheet, you can see where in Revelation 5, Jesus is this lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He, he's this one that we've been waiting for in this sense, but we don't know this at this point. You know, we just know, okay, there's something more. There's more clues with Judah. And then we move to Moses. I think we're familiar with Moses and, and Exodus, a deliverance. But Moses said something interesting as well, where he said that there would be a prophet like him that would rise up among the people and you're to listen to him. So Moses adds this other clue to the storyline, following the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent, getting clues through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And now we have Moses and his deliverance of the people out of slavery. 
which is very important to understand when we start thinking about these things in, in typological form, as we start thinking about what salvation really is and how um, it can mean more to us when we start understanding the bigger picture of these things. So these people were in slavery. They were being mistreated, as you're probably familiar with, um, in Egypt, chained and beaten and, and treated as animals, right? And so to be delivered from that is a big deal. Um, and God reaches down and saves them. We know of the Passover and the Passover lamb where the blood had to be spread over the doorposts, right, of a spotless lamb for this salvation to be in process and come to these people. And that this deliverance was about getting his, his son out of Egypt so that he could worship him and serve him, so that the son could worship and serve God. And so the son of God um, is important. Adam was called the son of God. So not just Jesus being referred to as the son of God, but Adam was referred to that. Israel itself was referred to that. Ultimately, Christ will embody all of that as we move up to that. But it's important to have in mind Moses saying that a prophet like him would rise up. It's important to be mindful of what deliverance is, what salvation looks like when you have an oppressor over you like Pharaoh, mistreating you and beating you and treating you like an animal and controlling you. Right, because all this is going to be background to understanding what Christ does when He crushes the head of the serpent, who was Pharaoh-like upon us, all of us, in this state. And we need to realize that we're, we were, or we are slaves to sin. When we sin, we become slaves of sin, and we are stuck in this shackled situation that we need to be rescued from. And that's what Christ does for us. And it's also important to know that the law comes after that salvation. So God gives all these instructions, right? All these commandments, all these things you got to do, right? All the joy killing happens. But that's on the heels of being delivered from salvation. So you've been given all this gift and rescue that you could come out and worship and serve. And then there's instruction in how to live in a certain way, which the Lord's Prayer is going to help us out a lot in that fashion as well. And then you have Joshua, whose name in Hebrew is... Jesus' name. So there's a correlation between Joshua and Jesus. Yeshua in the Hebrew is the same name as Jesus' name. Um, and there's something to be said about that because Joshua takes over for Moses. Moses can't go into the promised land. God didn't allow him to go in. He could only look and see it at a distance. And he longed to go into the promised land. All these promises that God had, right? But Joshua's going to be the man to lead him then. He's going to take him into the promised land. So that's significant as well as we think about the scriptural story from creation to new creation in the promised land. And that his name means God saves. So Joshua has all this typology with Jesus as well. Very um, significant in the whole storyline, right? So we're just doing that high-level overview. And then we get to David, who is probably the most significant figure within the Old Testament. Because from David, we have the promise that one's going to rule as king. And this kingship is important because we prayed, you know, in the Our Father that your kingdom would come, right? So how do we understand what that even is? What does that even mean within the scriptural story and context? Well, David helps us to start understanding that a little bit more. And in particular, a promise to David that his son would build the temple. So David had it in his heart that he wanted to build the temple for God, this house of worship, this house where sacrifice would be made prayer would be given, and so forth. But David wasn't going to be allowed to build the temple. It would be his son. And so is Solomon going to be this one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Because he's another clue along the storyline here for us. 
And in Solomon's reign, we had world peace. There was, there was no more war. It was, it was perfect in a sense. He was extremely wise. The nations were flooding to hear from him, the things that he could say and offer to them when they asked questions and wanted to learn things, right? He was the most wise man that walked the earth at the time and ever since, except for Jesus Christ himself. And he indeed did build the temple. And so these things are massively significant as we start moving up to Jesus, because he's going to fulfill all these things, all the types. When he steps onto the stage, all this stuff's in the background. When he teaches us to pray, the Our Father, all these things are in the background to help us understand each of those lines and what they mean. And so as we get to Jesus, we start thinking about, wow, how, how is he fulfilling these things? And why does this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 start out with David's name instead of Abraham? Abraham came before David, but it's flipped in the genealogy. And that's on purpose because it's highlighting the significance of David, the son of David, which Jesus is. It's a very important part for us to see, and that's why the, the author was putting that forward in this way. And so as we think about this storyline, we're actually on, on the timeline, as it were. So as you read the Bible, and you jump into this book, as it were, because that's the way I like to think about it and look at it. You, you, you can get in here and you're moving around on the pages, right? You're experiencing these things that they experienced. I've, in some sense, tasted the power of God by reading scripture. Um, Chance talked about how uh, the power of God's unleashed in prayer. Well, it's unleashed in the same way in God's word. This explosive dynamite um, happens through the encounter of God's word. Uh, we meet him here on these pages and he can speak to us and we can experience that in this new way with our imagination, with all of our senses, everything that there is, God has given us to know him and to know him better. And so as you do that, I mean, things like reading the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, you can cross the Red Sea with those Israelites through the reading of scripture. You can walk with them and you can see the walls of water flying up. You can feel that power when you read the text like that. This book is not boring, it's exciting. If you enter into the story, the way God's drawing us to do so, you can feel that in many different parts throughout the Bible. It's not all this boring, dusty book stuff. You know, it's exciting material um, as we enter the story and, and get our bearings of working through that. And so I encourage you just to be thinking about what, if I'm not started, where could I start? What am I, what am I doing to help myself see the bigger picture of these things so I can put all this together the way God desires and the church has instructed us to do? And how, what does it look like here where you see the church on the timeline? We're right in between the church and return. That's us. So we're on this timeline right now. We're a player in God's story. We're, we're in here. And what part are you going to play in that is a question that you can be asking yourself. What, what will I be doing in this timeline? Do I, do I know my full scope of what's involved here? What part do I really have to play? You know, I'm, I'm a nobody. You know, what could I really do? You know, I've thought those exact same thoughts before. And so what we'll try to do here is cover a couple more points before a break. And I'm sure I'll run out of time at some point uh, to get through all these things, but we'll we'll see how it goes. I do want to share um, a couple of these things from the catechism under uh, number one. We'll look at uh, point C. Because this is what the church has to say about the scriptures, which is pretty strong language for us to consider. 
Point C says the church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. For this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. Letter D. In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and strength. She welcomes it, not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. So the church is, is exhorting us. The church is encouraging us uh, to explore the scriptures. That through scripture, the Father comes lovingly to speak to his children. He has something to say to you. He wants to speak to you personally about many different things, which also requires on our part the ability to listen, which means we need to be quiet and still oftentimes, which is pretty hard in our day and age as well. And that's a that's a growing thing that could come out of uh, the Lord's Prayer and thinking about that a little bit more. So hopefully a few of the application points that, that you'll be able to get to if we don't get to them at the end would be Asking the Lord to teach you to pray. That's a that's something that even if we're been doing that for years, maybe we're really good at praying, you know, in the sense of I've been praying well for years. Well, we can always be taught more. The humility to ask the Lord to teach us to pray, which is what the Lord's prayer came out of. His disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then what he turned around and told them was the Our Father, right? So this is how he instructs us in that. And so it would be good for us to ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And to meditate on each of those lines of the Lord's Prayer, just to just to read one of them. Maybe that day that's all you would even read, and you just think about it all day, right? Where it says, "Our Father." What does that mean? What does it mean that He's our Father? And and you're asking Him yourself, what what does that mean? What was it to know you as Father? What is this love that you that you have that maybe I don't feel like I'm experiencing or know? What is it that you want to say to me in that? And so I would encourage you to, to meditate on each line. These are just possible practical applications that you could take away. And also consider reading scripture daily if you're if you're not. Uh, think about how could I tackle this? We have the daily readings within the church, which I love, right? Um, and, and obviously you attend mass, you, you'd hear readings there. We have plenty of readings, but some of the challenge there is the lectionary is almost presupposing you know the context of where all these readings are coming from, right? Because if you don't necessarily know where that came from out of Ezekiel and what that whole context was there, look at how much that you're missing and not understanding, right? So the lectionary and the readings almost assume you, you have a, a knowledge of these things, which the church has exhorted us to be to know and understand. Um, so you can start with daily readings. You can start with one line. It, there's a hundred different ways you could, you could read. Um, for me, it started with um, a one-year Bible. So there's these one-year Bibles where it tells you what to read each day of the week, right? And by the time one year's passed, you've gone through the whole thing, cover to cover. You've read it all. And I've done that many times, and it was, it was great for me. It worked for me because I, I woke up early. I would read those readings, and by the end of the year, I read through the whole Bible. And then you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. And pretty soon, you, you're familiar with these things, and I can I can move around and, and find things, you know, in here. And man, this is this is exciting. Um, now, granted, that's not necessarily going to be for everybody, um, 
But the important part is that we're reading scripture. We're thinking about what God wants to say to us because he wants to speak to us just as the catechism was instructing us. And so hopefully there'll be one thing that you can take away after it's all said and done. There'll just be one thing in the notes. I like notes personally. I don't, I'm not a note taker because when I start trying to write notes, I'm not hearing what the person's trying to say. So I like notes. Um, I like to be able to refer back to them after a lesson's done and, and thus you get, you know, eight pages of notes because you might be able to take that away and, and look at one of those things. Um, obviously, a lot of these things end up in the trash as well. Um, but I would encourage you to get a notebook together, to get a three ring binder with all the notes that are handed out with RCIA and you keep that together, right? So you could refer back to some of these things um, as you go along. And so I, I love notes. I like text. I like to be able to reread and think deeply on things. And that's just how I kind of operate. So that doesn't work for you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> hopefully the notes aren't uh, totally overwhelming as well, but this will help keep us uh, moving on track with, with some of these very um, helpful things to give some background to the Our Father prayer. And so with that, we'll move into 1.1 to help kind of set the stage of God's plan, leading us up to better understanding of our Father. And so this passage from Ephesians, I want to read, this is a letter A. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So you'll notice throughout the notes, there are things that are that are bolded and italicized, and that's just my doing to try to emphasize a couple different points um, to talk about other things in the notes that you'll see is if you see this CCC and then a number after it, that means the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So I just want to point that out. That's what that means. I strongly encourage getting a catechism. If you don't have one, it's an amazing book. Um, it'd be the next best book to have next to the Bible, right? Because it helps us understand the Bible. And so you'll see a lot of CCCs and a number in here because that's referring to the catechism. But for this passage, you'll notice there that it's before the foundation of the world. God's already got things in mind for us, for each one of us. He desires us to be his children. He desires us to walk with him and to know him personally and intimately, like you would a, a friend, right? You, you would talk with them back and forth. Like, do you do that with God? Do you talk to him like that? Do you know him in that way? Have you had an encounter with him that's changed your life? Because any encounter with Christ has to change us. It moves us to be different, right? Maybe in little ways, it could be in giant ways, but it has to move and change us. That, that's the reality of how having an encounter with him. And so this plan has been before the foundation of the world that he's been moving forward to do this. It's not um, a knee-jerk reaction to the fall, to Adam and Eve sinning, right? He knew that was coming. But that was all in place because true love has to have free will. 
if Adam and Eve are going to truly love God, they can't be robots, right? So they're going to have to have the opportunity to choose against him or for him. This is where free will comes into play and how sin enters the world in that sense. And of course, that already come through the temptation of the evil one. So here we have temptation back in the garden, right? And when we get to the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, lead us not into temptation. So how do we understand that in light of what happened in Genesis and what all the Bible is teaching us to have wisdom around temptation and sin and things of this nature? And so we'll be mindful of these things as we think about God's plan to adopt us as his son, sons and daughters. And so at point B, I draw your attention back to Genesis, right? Because in here, there's something important to pick up on where it says, I will put enmity, and he's speaking after the fall here to Adam and Eve and, and Satan's present as well. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here God's talking to the serpent and he's talking to Adam and Eve. And, and we see that there's going to be offspring from both, right? And so what does that mean? What does that look like as things play out in the world? And as you keep reading Genesis, things got worse and worse and worse until the flood came and washed the earth clean of all that filth, right? And he saved the eight and brought them out to start all over again. And so there's something here for us to think about as we approach what Jesus has to say in John chapter eight, because what he says to these folks can be a pretty jarring um, and maybe not so Jesus-like as we think of him, right? Like he's this loving and kind and merciful teacher. But listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, if you, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a father, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now that is some pretty strong language. Where he told those people they were children of the devil. Where we knew back in the beginning there are going to be these offspring of two different sorts, right? And so how can that be? How can there be these people? These were these were Israelite people. These were people that said that they worship the one true God, right? And yet he calls them children of the devil. Now here's what 1 John has to say on the next bullet point. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here again, he's 
St. John is saying the same things that Jesus said. And so we should rightly ask, where are we at in that whole mess of things? How do we know which side of the, the fence we're on, right? As we look at um, different things within Scripture, we can see that we've all been born into sin. We all know that we were born with original sin. That means we're all born onto the, the wrong team, right? We're on the devil's side, right out of the gate. Thus, baptism sets us free from that, and we are now in a right state with God if we've been rightly, validly baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and with water. But then that doesn't just miraculously keep things that way, right? The Catholic Church teaches that we could fall away from that. We could lose our salvation that was given to us. We could go back on to the wrong team, right? And align ourselves back with the devil. And we do that every time we sin. Thus, running to confession is a great thing for us to be doing, to be confessing our sins and turning away from that. Because that's how we know who the children of God are, right? They continually turn back. They might fall, but they get back up and they turn back to God. They keep doing that over and over again. But it's important for us to understand that we're born into this condition where we need to be rescued. Do you understand how you've been rescued like those Israelites were in that slavery and that captivity? And does that change the way you think about salvation and your relationship with God? Does it, does it bring any thankfulness? Does it bring any motivation to tell other people that you want to live a different kind of life because you've seen how amazing God's grace is when you look upon the cross and you think of the entire storyline and what the spiritual implications really are there where he's crushing the head of the serpent in that way where he's setting us free he's given us the opportunities uh, to walk in that freedom or to not and so some of these things really help us um, understand the whole the whole storyline right as jesus exhorts the apostle paul to go out and and rescue people from darkness to light right we've all been given the same mission we all are to be rescuing people from darkness and bringing them to light in our own little ways. You think, I love the story of the woman at the well because her encounter with Christ, and if you're familiar with her at all in John chapter four, she was living a very sinful life, right? She had five husbands and the man she was living with at that time was not her husband. Jesus said that right to her. And yet she has this encounter with him that radically changes her life, right? All she knows is that Jesus is truly the Messiah He's come to forgive her sins. She's been waiting for this hope. And all she can go out and do is tell people, hey, come and see, right? If you can just tell people to come and see, that's all you have to do. Come and see. Come to RCIA. Come to this Bible study Mark's doing in the Gospel of John or whatever it might be, right? Just come and see. That's all we have to be able to do. And we should want to do it. So, yes, we're obligated, but do you want to? Is there any stirring in you at all? Or are you dead inside? There should be life. There should be excitement. And if there's not, there should be questions to ask of yourself and to pray about, right? Why don't I have this excitement? What am I, where am I at with my relationship with God? Do I really know him? Have I encountered him like the woman at the well? Because every encounter like that, those people walk differently. They're completely changed. They're not the same person anymore, right? That's what a true encounter with Jesus is. That a personal relationship with him changes a person's life in some way, shape, or form. And I can say radically, for me, because, you know, moving from this seat up to here to talk is radical in my case, right? He didn't necessarily save me from being a, a bum on the street that was doing drugs necessarily. That would be radical too. But just the normalness of someone walking up from there to here is radical. It's powerful. And he's done that in my life. And I hope he's done those kinds of things in your life. And then the questions are, well, what, what does that mean for me? Because each of us have a special part 
a special part to play as we think about the body of Christ, we think about um, the temple that's being built. So Solomon was supposed to build that temple. And I'm skipping forward a little bit here because I want to talk about this because I think this part's important. When you, when you build the temple, he had to chisel out, not him personally, but you chisel out all these stones, right, that come together and they have to fit together perfectly. Each stone is critical to the whole building, right? The Bible describes us as living stones. Jesus is building the church like he's building a temple. And he's putting each one of us together in this unique way. So each one of you have a unique gift, at least one, maybe more, that you're to be using for the kingdom. You know what it is. Are you ready to serve him with those gifts? Some are super small, some are super big. Some are feet, some are eyes. Like there's a whole range, but you have something unique. Only you have it. Only you can contribute. Only you're this special unique stone to play this certain part. And so that's exciting. You're in God's story that we've talked about. You have a unique part to play. You need to know what it is. That takes prayer. That takes discernment. That takes talking with other people. That's trying to understand what the spiritual gifts could be or are, right? So each of us will have that. Each of us have been confirmed. Uh, we get a special gift at that point. At least one, maybe multiple. Just kind of depends what God wants to do in your life and through you to bring glory to his name. So I encourage you to, to think about that. You're special. You're unique. You're God's child. There's something he has in store for you that only you can do. I can't do it. No one else can do it. Only you can do it because I always created you. He's uniquely wired you for that particular thing. So number two, and then we'll take a little break. So the Lord's Prayer, just, just a overview here before we look at each line. The Lord, this prayer is Christ's answer to his disciples' plea, right? Where they said, teach us to pray. Jesus does not give us a formula to repeat mechanically. Christ gives us these words, not like a book to read, but like a piece of sheet music to sing. We must pray, not just with our words, but with our minds and our hearts. Now, this is important. It, it's like a piece of sheet music. And I don't know if any of you are musically talented, inclined, really appreciate music. I'm... I'm not strong in that area, but I appreciate music. It does something to us, right? It moves us interiorly in different ways than a book might do or speaking could do, right? Prayer is more like that. It's more like music. It's mystical. There's something mysterious that we can enter into outside of time and space when you enter into prayer, right? It can affect things that happened a thousand years ago or things a thousand into the future. Prayer can do that because it enters into God who is outside of time and space. That's why we could pray for people that have died a thousand years ago. And that prayer could still have effect because God knew it would happen. He knows how to take that and apply it back to the moment of that person's death to give them grace that they might turn or repent and have a good death possibly, right? So that is amazing when it comes to prayer. And so we're not just rattling through this mechanically, this mechanical formula. If I just say these right words, the right times over and over and over, God's going to hear it. No, it, it's mysterious. It's something we enter into. It's something we would sing that should change the game of the way we think about the Lord's prayer, just prayer in general. And there's nothing wrong with, with repeating things, going through those motions of any kind, but it's changing the perspective that it's, it's deeper, it, it's more, and that it's not done vainly. So that's the key with Jesus' vain repetition. It's not repetition. The Israelites were, were big on repetition. Repetition was all a part of, of worship and liturgy and things of the Israelites. It was vain when you're just doing it out of motion, right? No heart, like he said there. Our heart and our minds engaged. We want to know God. 
we have a we have passion there. We have a relationship there. There's intimacy, right? So letter C, the Lord's Prayer is the most perfect of prayers. In it, we ask not only for the things we can rightly desire, but also the sequence that they should be desired. Point D, the Lord's Prayer has seven petitions that can be divided in two parts. The first section, Matthew 6, 9 through 10, glorifies God, while the second half, Matthew 6, 11 through 13, petitions God about our needs. In the Our Father, the object of the first three petitions is the glory of the Father, the sanctification of his name, the coming of the kingdom, and the fulfillment of his will. The four others present our wants to him. They ask that our lives be nourished, healed of sin, and made victorious in our struggle of good over evil. The Sermon on the Mount is teaching for life. The Our Father is a prayer. But in both the one and the other, the Spirit of the Lord gives new form to our desires. Those inner movements that animate our lives, Jesus teaches us this new life by his words. He teaches us to ask for it by our prayer. The rightness of our life in him will depend on the rightness of our prayer. And I love that line, that the rightness of our life in him will depend on the rightness of our prayer. If we pray rightly, if we learn what that is, and the Lord's Prayer helps instruct us to pray rightly, right? Because they ask him to teach us to pray, and then he lays that out. Then we can get everything moving in the right direction for us. And so with that, we'll take a little bit of a break, and we'll come back and, and briefly skim over each line of the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> 